I have to tell you a story. Uh, this, this week is Frogfest week. Anybody heard of Frogfest? You know what that is? No idea. Okay, so Summerton, Alabama does a, a festival every year, and it's called the Frogfest. So there are no frogs, but they call it Frogfest. I don't know where they came from, but that's what happens. So we know when Frogfest week comes, it's, uh, it gets real real quick because my wife, is in charge of all the uh, the people who come in and sing and play and the stages. And then she kind of runs around and does the stuff that other people really don't want to do. You know, when you get that job that's really important, but you don't get paid for it. So that's kind of what they put her through. So we know that this week's pretty tough. And so I said to her, well, looking forward to Frog Fest. Well, when are you preaching at uh, Nelson's Church? Oh, man, it's that weekend. It's Frogfest weekend. So all day long, we stay there. Uh, she gets up at like 2 o'clock in the morning or whatever that is, and I just let her go do that stuff. And we sit out in the sun all day long. And you ever seen that one French fry that's left in the fryer that nobody picks out? That's what we're like when we get done at the end of the day. So um, anyway, we got done with that last night. She's exhausted. I'm exhausted. So we're heading home. And I'm going to tell this scholar because I'm going to get on to you because she, she went on a date last night. Guys, let me ask you a question. <sighs> Fathers in the room that have daughters. Oh, I'm not, wor- I'm not ready for this yet. Okay? I can't do this yet. You know, we have a son, Hayden. He's a Marine now. Um, man, when he went on a date, it was like, damn, go on a date. Go. Great, get out of here. I don't want to see you anymore. You're cool. Go, go. Well, I'm going to be out this place. Cool. Go take her. Go do whatever. They ask her on a date. Mm-mm. No, no, it's it's different. See, CJ, he's a good guy. CJ came up to me yesterday, shook my hand, and I looked him in the eye, and I shook his hand, and I went, what's up, man? You good? But in, my, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, if you hurt her, I'm going to kill you with a fork. Okay, I'm just going to, I'm, you're done. So anyway, they, he's a great kid, really, seriously, he's super great. So through all of the stuff yesterday and all the running around, you get scattered. Uh, you don't know exactly what's going on and where things have been put and where I'm supposed to be next. So we had it on home, and uh, we're there, and we're unwinding. We're getting everything uh, kind of settled in for the night, and She's exhausted. She's done. She's toast. And I said, I'll stay up. I'll wait for her and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll wait for her to get home. Well, a text message comes through. Hey, um, are my keys in your car? Because her car is down in Summerton and we live about 40 minutes away in Coleman. And it's now midnight. And I'm like, man. So I get in the car, drive to Summerton, put the keys right there and then sit and wait. And I'm going to you know, follow her home because that's what good dads do, and I don't want to kill him with a fork, so I'm going to be sure she's good getting home. So anyway, I say all that to say this. There is truth that you think is truth and things you think are true because in your mind and in your heart, you just know it, right? You've been either told that or you believe that. Um, or some well-meaning fella told you that or lady told you that, but then there's real truth. Then there's truth that the Bible speaks about, that you go in for a deeper understanding and a deeper meaning, and that's truth. That's, that's what the Lord reveals to you. And it's not new truth. It's truth that's always been around. But then sometimes things get in the way. Things get jumbled up. They get misplaced. Um, maybe someone's got a different agenda. Uh, maybe somebody wants there to be something different. And instead of going off of what this word says... 
Um, they tell you what's maybe more convenient or what they've always been taught. Amen. How many of you heard the, um, the, the verse in the Bible, God helps those who help themselves? It's not there. We've heard it all our lives, guys. I heard it from my dad over and over again. And I was like, what is that book that that's in? I've got to study on this. God helps those who help themselves. It's not there. God is always there. He's always there for the ones who can't help themselves, who are oppressed, who are hurting, who cannot get up from the bottom. Do, do, you, do, you, do you see where I'm going with this? Because we've always thought that, right? Well, if that, if that guy would, would just get a job, if that guy would just get off the street, you know, if that guy would just get off drugs, you know, that person will quit drinking so much. Have we been there? Have we, in our minds, we thought that? God helps those who help themselves? Mm-mm. Jesus has got another way. When Jesus came, he changed everything. Absolutely changed everything. So when I talked to Nelson and he said, hey, you come and you speak, and brother, I want you, you know how he is. Brother, I want you to just pour your heart out. You preach, you just preach. You just do what the Spirit tells you. I, I'm praying for you. So anyway, he started praying that. And the comfortable thing for me to speak on would be what these guys do up here, because this is what I've always done is the worship stuff, right? So worship and warfare, that's easy. Man, I've... I got that. So I'm thinking, God, I got this. I'm speaking worship and warfare, and we're good. And the Holy Spirit came back and said, no, no, that's not the word that I have because I want it to be for you guys. I don't want to be what you want. I want a word to be given that's for you. And so I hit Nelson up, and I said, man, I, I, I'm struggling with this, and I really want to do what the Spirit tells me to do. So... I'm going to preach on something that's kind of controversial, but it's real. And we know it's real because the Lord has placed it in my heart. And it's empowering women in ministry. It's a touchy subject. We've all heard a lot of things about how that looks, what that looks like, and how it's supposed to be. So what I'd like to do with you today is I would like to take you through from the beginning, from the garden, to where we're standing today. That's a long way, isn't it? But I promise we'll get there quick. Um, and we have some scripture that I want to go through. So if you would, we've got some different translations. Some other things are going to be up on the screens, and I'm reading out of the NIV. But whatever you got, if you could open that up and turn to Genesis chapter 2. And we're going to start at the beginning in verse 4. we got a summary. We're going to go from creation, the beginning, to the fall, to the New Testament, and into Judaism. And then we know when Jesus comes in, what the New Testament says and where we are today. So let's read this account real quick about when uh, Eve was brought from Adam as his helper. It says, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the, he- with the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. And the Lord formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. So we all know the story. We, we heard it in flannel graphs in school, uh, when we were in Sunday school. And so we know this story, right? We know, we know where all this is going. So it goes on to say the Lord... 
uh, had planted a garden in the east of Eden, and there he put the man where he had formed. He made all kinds of trees to grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden was the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden uh, to work it and take care of it. So it goes on to say, uh, he gives him the command of what he was free to eat from, what he was not free to eat from. He also made animals, wild animals and livestock, and he named, he had man name all the animals, but there was a, something missing. There wasn't a completion with the man because God said it's not good for man to be alone. And so he said, I will create him a helper. Okay, that's, that's how the King James and the, the NIV uh, says it, but we're going to look at it in the Hebrew in just a minute. And, and it says, uh, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. In verse 21, it says, so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and that he closed up the place with the flesh uh, where the flesh was opened. And he said, then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my, my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Okay. Keep remember that one flesh. So helper, what have we been told? Helpmate, right? But in the Hebrew, it's, it's used three times to describe woman, and it means completion or completer. It's also used 13 times in the Bible for God himself, the completer, also the Holy Spirit, the completer, one who comes to complete or finish or be a helper, Okay. One of the things I find interesting is, is that when he came uh, to the man and he, and he took something out of a part of him, he didn't take it from his head and he didn't take it from his foot. He took it from his side. Why did he take it from his side? It's symbolic. Words mean things. The things that God does are intentional. It's meant to get our attention and he's going to teach us something with that. The reason why I took it from his side was because this helper, this helpmate, this completer, was to be alongside, not behind, not in front, but right here. Remember what he said, flesh of my flesh, and we were one flesh. We became one thing. She completes me, right? Have you ever heard that statement? She completes me. He completes me. Scriptural, that's what this is all about. When God created um, Adam and Eve, he created a complete person. That's why we know that marriage is ordained by God, because it's supposed to be one flesh. That's the way it was supposed to be from the beginning. But something else comes into the picture and changes this original design, and it's the fall. And so what I want you to do is I want you to turn to Genesis three fourteen and 15, and we're going to see Satan come in. Now, he's already been cast down. We've already had a war in heaven where a third of the angels were sent down, and he's here. He's, he is walking the earth that has been created. He's here, okay? And he has a different plan. It's not the original design. It's a broken design. How many believe you have an enemy? You have an enemy, and he's here to mess you up, and he doesn't fight fair. And so he's going to do something in this that changes things until we're standing right where we're standing today. And it says, after he came... 
to the woman, he deceives the woman. He comes to the woman in the garden. He asks the question. And what he's doing is he's asking her to question the one who's created her. Do you trust him? Do you really trust him? So he told you not to eat from this tree. Now, if you eat from this tree, you're going to know everything. And the reason he doesn't want you to know everything is because then you'll be like him. And so the more he talks and the more she listens, the more she decides, I'm going to try it. Do you know that Adam's right here? They're one flesh. They're not apart. That relationship's not broken. They're not doing their own thing. They were together. That's his completion, right? He's standing here listening to the same thing. It's interesting that the serpent goes to Eve. Why does the serpent go to Eve? Because she has more discernment. If he can get her, he can get the man. How many guys in the room have an amazing wife that you said, I'm going to go do this, and she said, no, you're not. You're about to really blow it. If you go do that, it's going to be bad news for both of us, so don't do it. How many? Come on, guys, put your hands up. We don't know what we're doing. We're just kind of doing the task thing. That's what we're built to do. We're going to fix the problem. We're going to go over here and conquer the world. She's the one giving us discernment, correct? Eve was the last creation. She was the last thing that God created. You realize that, right? She's not the pinnacle of creation because he said all things are good, but she is full of the characteristics of God in the way of discernment. Uh, How many intercessors do we have in the room? How many people pray? How many are prayer warriors? Women, right? You haven't heard a song yet that says, or, or many testimonies yet that say, I am where I am today, and God got a hold of my life because my dad was on his knees in the kitchen or my granddad was on his knees in the bedroom praying for me. Mm-mm. It's, what are these? Mama's praying hands. That's where we get that from, right? My grandmother absolutely assaulted the throne room. That's what most guys will say that have gone off into the world. She assaulted the throne room for me. She's the reason she got a hold of God, and he got a hold of me. The reason why is because women are in tune to a lot of the spiritual things going on around us. It's where women's intuition comes from. It's where discernment comes from. Okay, It's biblical. It's real. It's what God built into women. So if I can get the woman, I can get the man. He's standing right there because she turns around and says to him, I think it's cool. Go ahead and try it. So now we're at the fall. God comes back into the garden. He knows what's wrong. And now there's circumstances. There are results of what we've done for the choices that we've made, right? Always results. Always consequences. So in Genesis 3, 14 through 15, uh, we're going to look at what we know what the curse is on man. We know what the curse is on woman. We're, we're in a good portion of that today. We're going to look at what the curse was on, on Satan. It's two things. It's in the physical. It's in the spiritual. Uh, Genesis three fourteen. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offsprings and hers, and he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. It's a multifaceted deal. Do you know that God doesn't just do one thing? He's doing a lot of things with one thing that he does. So in, there's a ton packed in this 
scripture right here. Number one, we know it's the curse for the for the natural animal. We know it's the curse for the spiritual being who used the animal in Satan. And we know that it's a prophecy, right? It's a prophecy because we know that Christ is the offspring in this, and he's going to come in and he's going to crush his head. There's a really good sandal print of Jesus on, on the back of Satan's neck right now. You get that right. He has fulfilled this prophecy. But it's also for us because the woman has that discernment. The woman will get on her knees and she will go to war for her son or her grandson, or the man may walk and say, I don't know, let him go. That's me. She will petition the courts of heaven until she gets an answer. I don't care, I don't care if it's 20, 30, 40, 50 years. She's going to do that. She's in war with the enemy. What does it say? Go back and read it. I will put enmity, that is hatred. She's going to hate you. And she's going to do everything she can do through me in what she knows and been taught to, to, to crush you. And she, if she teaches this to her kids, because it says here, and between your offspring and hers, if she ever finds her place the way that God has it designed, it's a whole different ballgame for the enemy. So what's the enemy going to do? He's going to do his best not for this to happen. I'm not going to try. I'm, if, if, it's going to, if it's going to get me on this side of the prophecy, I'm going to do everything I can do on the backside in the natural to keep the rest of this church, half of this church, from doing what God originally designed. Amen? Okay. So let's go further. Let's go to the Old Testament. And I want to uh, talk about some, uh, a lady in the Old Testament named Deborah. Anybody heard of Deborah? All right. Okay. So Deborah is a judge. She's the fourth and only judge, the highest-ranking leader during this time. Keep in mind, this is during the Old Testament. It's after the curse. This is after what I've heard a lot of times is the woman is a weaker vessel. She stays behind the man. She's not going to lead. We're going to leave that for the man. The man leads, then he rules over the woman, and then here's the, right? The fourth and only judge, highest-ranking leader during this time. This is, this is found in Judges 4. You can read it. She's a prophetess. Okay, so she's given a gift that none of the other judges ever receive. She also receives direct communication, direct download from God. None of the other judges ever get this gift. She's the only one. And there's only three other women uh, in the Old Testament who, who, get, who get that gift at that time. Um, she is so good at what she does, and she's such a good leader, that she's over the whole nation of Israel at that time. And the guys trust her so much with her leadership and what she does, the guys, that they will go and do what the Lord tells her to do through them as a command. So at that time, you have the Canaanites, who are the baddest guys in the room, 900 iron chariots in their force, and it's certain death if they go against these guys. The Israelites, if they go against them, they don't have the manpower, they don't have the people. But she commands Barak, who's the leader of the Israelite troops at that time, I want you to go and muster 10,000 troops, and I want you to go against the general Sisera, the baddest guy on the block. 
Okay, that would be kind of like if, let's put it this way, if the island of Java decides they want to attack the United States and take us over, that would be in the physical about what you're looking at here. They're not going to do it. They're not going to win. They trust her so much, he grabs 10,000 guys, he goes to the river, he does exactly what she tells them is going to happen through the prophecy of the Lord, and it happens. And not one guy is left alive. The only one left alive is Sisera. He runs away. And another woman in a tent draws him in because she knows the prophecy too. And she's going to make it happen as well, come to fruition, and puts a tent peg through his head. That's the last guy that fulfills the prophecy. So in the Old Testament, it seems like God's okay with women in leadership to me. Do you agree? She's used Deborah as a judge. He's used Deborah as a judge. Um, she is the most, before the kings came into play, she is the most powerful person in Israel. So I'm, I'm seeing here that this is okay already in the Old Testament. So let's fast forward. Let's go into the time period between Micah and Matthew. It's a 400-year period of darkness, and it is right before the time that Jesus walks the earth. Now, how many of you are familiar with the law of Moses? It's the Torah. It's, what, uh, it's, it's what's given to Moses, the Mosaic law that's brought down. And it is passed down to all the people of Israel. How many Pharisees and Sadducees do you know in the Old Testament? Zero. Why? Because during that 400 years of darkness, a new religion comes forward. It's called Judaism. And they have the written... And the oral laws, the Mishnah, the Torah, and the Talmud. And over this 400-year period, they add to a total of 613 laws to the people. Do you remember Jesus said, you break their back with your laws. You're killing these people with all these laws you're having them go through, when really they just need to be worshiping in spirit and in truth, right? Okay. So I want to give you just a little introduction into what Judaism looked like for a woman, okay? During those years, they continued to fashion these laws against women to keep them in a place to where they could be under control. Essentially, they took every right and everything away from a woman that was in that time period and in that culture, a very strict Middle Eastern culture in, in, in this way. Uh, so I'll read these to you. I think you'll find these interesting. The temple was fashioned to keep women in a further outer court from the area where the men and the priests practiced the rituals of the faith. The, only the Gentiles were confined to a further outer court than the women. So you had the Gentiles on the outside edge. They could barely see what was going on up here. Then right on that cusp, you've got the women's court, and then you've got the men. Now past that wall is where all the good stuff happened. That's, that's where everything was read. That's, that's where, you know, word was given. That's where teaching happened. They're not allowed in there. Uh, it, was, it also says that it was illegal for a scribe, Pharisee, priest, or rabbi to teach anything from the Torah to women. Women were referred to as the property of men akin to slave ownership. No rights. Could not own property. Could not testify in a court case. And they could not speak to men as they walked by them on the street. If they were caught, they wore veils as well. If they were caught without their veil across their face, it was grounds for being stoned. Just as it is today in Middle Eastern culture, 
in other Middle Eastern states. Keep that in mind. Middle Eastern culture is akin to each other, and those things have come down through the line. So you see that oppression that's happening in Iran, Iraq, Syria. This is the same thing that you would see in these times. Women could not read the Torah or recite the evening prayers. Women could not marry more than one man, but it was commonplace and legal for a man to take more than one wife. And a woman could not divorce a man for any reason, but a man could divorce his wife on any grounds of complaint. She didn't fix dinner right. She's done. The woman can't do that. She doesn't have that power. There's been a systematic removal of power from the time that you see Deborah in the original design to what you have now as property. Women could not vote, be a witness in a court case, or keep any wage earning were, uh, any wage uh, of money earned uh, apart from a man, or keep any money that she that she earned through her own work. And this is the one that really got me: uh, two high priests before Caiaphas, who places Jesus in front of, you know, a Roman cross. Uh, the high priest Eleazar was quoted as saying, "I would rather burn the Torah than teach it to a woman." This is a very oppressive society. This is a really bad place for a woman to live. But when Jesus came, he changes everything, absolutely everything. So when he comes, he's baptized by John. He's led into the wilderness. So first he's being given his introduction. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased, right? That comes down from heaven, a word from heaven. He's the one. He's led into the wilderness to be tested by Satan. How many know that whenever you are recognized by God, you're doing something great by God, you will be tempted by the enemy? The enemy will come. He may come before, he may come after. Get ready, the attack is coming. Prepare yourself. So after he's coming out of the wilderness for 40 days, he immediately goes back to Nazareth. And in Luke 4, we see he goes back into the synagogue. And Luke 4, 16... Through 21, he pulls the scroll or has him pull the scroll of Isaiah and he fulfills the prophetic word that is said over him through Isaiah before Judaism and he says this. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up and on the Sabbath day he went to the synagogue as was the custom. He stood and read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him and unrolling it he found the place where it was written and he said, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What's the most oppressed people group? Women. I mean, oppression's going on. Systematic oppression's being handed down by the scribes and Pharisees for control. Keep in mind, when new law is set especially in a religious or a different uh, type of movement that you see coming up. When new law is set, it's usually for one of two things, money and power. It's usually never from God. He doesn't add new law because the one has come to fulfill the law. All right? So he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down, and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue, synagogue were fastened on him. I bet they were. I mean, he is reading from a scroll that has been handed down for hundreds of years, and he's saying, I fulfill this. I'm the one who's going to make this happen. 
Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And from that point on, he goes to war with the scribes and Pharisees. He is constantly warring with them over everything. The hypocrisy, the laws, the treatment. It's amazing. So one of the ones that I look at, and I'm going to read this from the Passion Translation, is when he visits Martha and Mary. How many have heard the story of Martha and Mary? All right? And you've heard a different, sometimes, you know, the last thing I hear is the, is the one I believe the most, but in this one I don't, because I've heard a lot of different versions of Martha and Mary. And usually it goes like this. Martha's really busy, so she's sinning. And Mary's listening to Jesus, so that's what you do. Don't be a Martha, be a Mary. Right? So let's read what it says. As Jesus and the disciples continued on their journey, they came to a village where a woman welcomed Jesus into her home. Her name was Martha, and she had a sister named Mary. Mary sat down attentively before the master, absorbing every revelation he shared. Remember that. That's a big line. But Martha became exasperated by finishing the numerous household chores in preparation for her guests, so she interrupted Jesus and said, Lord, don't you think it's unfair that my sister left me to do all the work by myself? You should tell her to get up and help me. The Lord answered her, Martha, my beloved Martha, why are you upset and troubled, pulled away by all of these many distractions? Are they really that important? Mary has discovered the one thing most important by choosing to sit at my feet. She is undistracted, and I won't take this privilege from her. What's Jesus doing? Breaking the law. You can't teach a woman the Torah. He can't even talk to her. He's a rabbi. Judaism states that she can't even speak to him, and he can't look at her. So what's Martha doing? She is going off of 400 years of programming. This is what I've got to do. For me to be in the good graces of God and my religion, I have to be in this kitchen. I cannot be taught by this man. So when she comes and confronts him, and Mary's a type A personality, keep that in mind. I mean, Martha's a type A personality. She's going, she's hammering him. Okay, you know better. You're a rabbi. She's supposed to be in here and helping me. She can't be at your feet listening to this stuff. Jesus says, no, it's different now. I've changed the rules. I've come into the picture. I'm going to teach you. I'm going to be your teacher. You're going to learn from me. Jesus doesn't teach you unless he has a mission for you. He never wastes being able to speak to you for something you're not going to use to change somebody's life later. Why would he teach these women? Because he's going to use them. What does Martha say to Jesus, as you say to Mary, when he goes to their town? By the way, the new, I love the New Testament writers, they put it that way. The village of Mary and Martha. They're coming to, he's coming to go ahead and, and heal the, his, their brother. And what does Martha say to Mary? Secretly, the teacher is here. Not the Savior, not the rabbi, the teacher is here. He's already doing this. He's already making this happen. So from the beginning, he's bringing women into the picture. He's letting them know there's worth. He's letting them know there's something different. I'm making a change. Another story I love is the the woman at the well or the Savior at the well. 
And it says in John 4, soon the news reached the Jewish religious leaders known as the Pharisees that Jesus was drawing greater crowds of followers coming to be baptized than John, although Jesus didn't baptize but had his disciples baptize the people. And Jesus heard what was being said and abruptly left Judea and returned to the province of Galilee and passed through the Samaritan territory. So he's teaching in another part of the region. The Pharisees are on his tail. They're constantly at everything he does. They're nipping at every teaching he has. They're trying to catch him in something so they can kill him. And so this is what's happening here. They have figured out he's making too much racket. He's drawing too many people. What he's saying has power, and we've got to do something to stop it. So he just stops there. Holy Spirit leads him through Samaritan country to another mission that he has. And he stops at the well. And it says, Jesus arrived at the Samaritan village of Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph long ago. Weary by his long journey, he sat on the edge of Jacob's well, and he sent his disciples into the village to buy food, for it was already afternoon. I think he sent them into the village to buy food because they're going to mess this up. They <laughs> ain't got a clue yet. They've gone through 400 years of this stuff too, and they're not going to know what to do with what he's about to, about to happen here. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink of water. He's breaking the law. Again, he's speaking to a woman. He's a rabbi, a teacher. That's who he is. Surprise, she said, Why would a Jewish man ask a Samaritan woman for a drink of water? So this isn't a Jewish woman. This is an outcast. This is another lineage and line of Jacob that has been placed in another people group by the Jews, mostly the scribes and Pharisees. You don't deal with these people. You don't have anything to do with them. They're second-class citizens. And Jesus replied, If you only knew who I am and the gift that God wants to give you, you'd ask me for a drink, and I would give you living water. And the woman replied, But, sir, you don't even have a bucket, and this well is very deep. So where do you find this living water? Do you really think... You are greater than our ancestor Jacob. Whoa! Now she's gone from you're this Jewish dude that's talking to me to hey we've got a we've got kinfolk that's together. So I'm trying to find camaraderie with you. I'm trying to find a connection with you. I like what you said already because you're just talking to me. You're actually speaking to me. Do you really think that you are greater than our ancestor Jacob, who dug this well and drank from it himself? along with his children and livestock. And Jesus answered, If you drink from Jacob's well, you will be thirsty again and again. If anyone drinks the living water, I will give them. They will never thirst again. And you know what it goes on and said? She is absolutely taken aback by what this guy is teaching her. And she knows she's being taught because she's sitting there and she asks more questions. The woman replied, Let me drink that water so I will never thirst again and won't have to come back here to draw water. And then Jesus gets to the point. Go get your husband and bring him back here. What have you been taught? She's immoral, right? She's a sinner at the well. She's come during the heat of the day. The reason why she comes to the heat of the day is because she doesn't want to be around the other women because they make fun of her because she's in such sin, right? It's a story we've heard. But I'm not married, the woman answered. True, Jesus said, for you've been married five times. Now you're living with a man who is not your husband. You have told the truth. Teaching. Aha, I got you. You are a sinner. Been married five times. And the one you're living with, I didn't, don't want to have anything to The woman cannot divorce the man. Right? Remember? Jewish law. It also goes to the Samaritans. They're in the same region. Five guys have thrown her away. 
And the one that's with her doesn't care about her enough to even marry her. Jesus is saying, it's different with me. I love you. I'm not going to throw you away. What does she say? You must be a prophet. Oh, yeah, I think so. If somebody's reading my mail like that, I know exactly what's going on. So tell me this. She's still asking for more teaching. She's thirsty. She's forgot about getting her water. Jesus has forgot about getting a drink. Now we're coming down to what Jesus really does. Meet you where you are. Set you free. Changes things. Why do our fathers worship God here on this nearby mountain, but you people teach that Jerusalem is a place where we must worship, which is right. She's studying on her own. She's breaking the law too. She's, she's do, she knows the teaching. She wants to know the truth. He says, Believe me, dear woman, the time has come when you won't hear worship. You, you won't worship the Father on a mountain, nor in Jerusalem, but in your heart, your people don't really know the one they worship. We Jews worship out of our experience, for it's from the Jews that salvation is made available. You know why? He's salvation. It's not an arrogant statement. He's a Jewish guy. He's born into the Jewish culture. I am salvation. I am light. From here on, worshiping the Father will not be a matter of the right place, but with the right heart. For God is a spirit, and he longs to have sincere worshipers who worship and adore him in the realm of the spirit and in truth. And the woman said, this is all so confusing, but I do know that the anointed one is coming, the true Messiah. And when he comes, he will tell us everything we need to know. She knows he's the Messiah. She's been studying on her own. There's a revelation happening here, and Jesus is touching a people group that has never been touched before for these 400 dark years. At that moment, the disciples returned and were stunned to see Jesus speaking with the Samaritan woman, yet none of them dared to ask why or what they were discussing. How many times do you think those jokers got slapped down when they came up when he was doing the teaching and he was changing things because they were going off of what they had always been taught? All at once, a woman dropped her water jar, ran off to her village, and told everyone, come and meet a man at the well who told me everything I've ever done. How could He could be the anointed one that we've been waiting for, hearing this, the people came streaming out of the village to go see Jesus. So Jesus turns in the scripture to the guy that's next to the well that's watering the camel and says, this is a woman. She really can't speak for me. I'm going to send you in her place as the man, and you're going to evangelize this whole village because she can't do it. No, she's the first female evangelist, and Jesus has ordained it. And the whole village gets saved, and he stays two more days teaching. Who's he teaching? The men, the women, and the children. He's changing things. He does it all throughout Scripture. The woman brought in adultery. What did you learn from that? She's a sinner, and Jesus saves her. There's a bigger picture. The Pharisees hate women. There's no man there. They bring the woman before him so they can either catch him or hurt him. They've tried to do it with this teaching, and they can't. So they get a people group, a person, that he loves dearly, and they know that now. Because he's pretty much skirting death at every pass to teach them about God, and they know that. So what does he do? He handles the situation. He ministers to her and sets them flying because they have nothing else that they can say or do to him. Why do prostitutes keep breaking into high priests' homes during dinners to worship Jesus? 
because He's touched them. And not in the way that the Pharisees and the Sadducees are accusing Him of doing. He has a bond with these women. Mary was unwed when she had Jesus. How does that story go down in the kitchen? Yeah, the Spirit of God came on me, and there was Jesus, and no man ever touched me, and all's well. Yeah, right, Mary. I'm sure believing that. Well, at that time, folks that were labeled that way, not not being on the up and up, not being what the Judaizers said they needed to be, there were women in that group. He Jesus grew up around women who were prostitutes, who were not looked at with great favor, and who had messed up. That's where the ministry comes in for them. So when he walks into Simon the high priest's house, and they've done none of the things at the beginning that their law state they should do, she does. And he just keeps on eating like nothing's going on because she's weeping at his feet. She's washing his feet with her hair, anoints him with perfume, and is worshiping him and they're not talking about this. These guys at the table, they can't even look at her. They're the, they're the Pharisees. They're Sadducees. We can't even deal with her. What does Jesus say? Simon, do you see this woman? He's not calling her out. He's calling him out. Do you see her? I came in your house and you didn't anoint me. But she's done nothing since she broke into your house since she's been here. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but she's laying kisses on my feet. You didn't anoint me with perfume. But she's given all she had for me. Why wouldn't I minister to them? That's what he's trying to tell them. Why do you think you're better than this? I'm going to change this. So we go on through Scripture. We know that this happens over and over and over again. And then we're taught in the New Testament, women be silent in the church. There were three different people groups that the New Testament was written to. And we have to take that into context. They were written to Jews, to Romans, and to Greeks. The Jews were the most oppressive. We got a pretty good picture of that. The Romans are a little bit better. If a woman gets married, then she can have property, and she can testify in a court case. But still not great. Greeks, on the other hand, they got a whole different ball game. They believe in mythology. What they believe is the woman came first. And so goddesses are the ones who run the towns. Ephesus, Corinth, Crete, they all have their own goddesses. In Ephesus, it's the goddess Diana, the goddess of fertility. That's why when Paul writes, the woman shall be saved through childbirth because of her relationship with Christ. It doesn't mean that the woman, the only way that she'll be saved is by having kids. He's talking to a certain context during a certain time in a letter to Timothy explaining they're coming here to your city to get under the shadow of this statue so that they will be saved during childbirth. Child mortality rate and women dying at that time giving childbirth was astronomical. We just don't hear about that very much here now because we, the technology is where it is. But then mortality rate was 65 70%. For women and children, either one or the other was going to die. So they had been taught, if I get under the shadow of this statue, Diana, the goddess, will save me during childbirth. He's stating, no, Timothy, teach them. You have something better. You have Christ. 
The statue won't save you. You'll be saved through childbirth through your trust in God. That's what he's saying. When the silence comes through and he's teaching them the woman is to be silent in church, do you know that the only time he does that is for the Greeks, for the Greek churches? It's letters to them. It's instruction. He never does it with the church that's established in a Jewish culture or a Roman culture, ever. He only does it in Ephesus and he does it in Corinthians. And the reason why is because the women were in charge to the point to where they were leading the men. What did we say about together? If it gets out of balance, it's not a completion. Either I'm oppressing you and you're behind me or you're going before me and that's not going to work either. We're one flesh. That's why it's a God-ordained institution, right? Okay? So when we get to this point, we know that the Greek women are bringing other teachings into the church. They're trying to mix the mythology with the Christianity. It's happened all through history. They're the ones taking up church. That's why he says, no, in this case, I need them to be silent. I need the men to stand up here and lead because they're, I don't say nothing because of the goddess may kill me. So they're not going to do that, right? So that's why he's speaking to that. I wanted to just read one thing from Paul where he is sending his greetings to everyone. It's in Romans 16, and it says, Now let me introduce to you our dear and beloved sister in the faith, Phoebe, a shining minister of the church in Centria. I am sending her with this letter and ask that you shower her with your hospitality when she arrives. Embrace her with, your, embrace her with honor, as is fitting for one who belongs to the Lord and is set apart. I am entrusting her to you. So provide her whatever she may need, for she's been a great leader and champion for many. And then this is the kicker. I know, for she's been that for even me. So you've got Paul stating, she's led me. She's been a light and an inspiration and a minister for me. That's a long way from silent in church, guys. So we've got to read in context. Go on. Give my love to Priscilla and Aquila, wife, husband. My partners in ministry, serving the anointed one, Jesus, for they've risked their own lives to save mine. I'm so thankful for them, and not just I, but all the congregations among the non-Jewish people, and the respect, and I respect them for their ministry. Also give my loving greetings to all the believers in their church house. Right? They had a house. Priscilla is the one who is really the minister in the situation. Words matter. The order of words matter. Priscilla and Aquila. We've got the wife first, the husband second. It does not mean that she's domineering the situation. It just means she's gifted differently than Aquila is. Understood? So she has gone forth and started this house church with him in partnership together. But in this situation, she truly is the lead in that church. That's, what she, well, that's why that is listed that way. And greet Eponetus, who was, first convert, who was the first convert to Christ in the Roman province of Asia, for I love him dearly. Give my greetings to Miriam, another woman, who has toiled and labored extremely hard to beautify you. And ending up in verse 7. Make sure that my relatives Andronicus, husband, and Junia, wife. Now, there have been times that you can see that they have tried to change that to Junius, or Junio, and that is not the way that you pronounce it. There, that was a name for a woman. It was very prevalent during that time. There is no historical prevalence for the other 
descriptions. So you have a husband and a wife here working together. They are honored for they are my fellow captives. They went to jail with him because they were preaching the gospel together. All three. Captives who bear the distinctive mark of being outstanding and well-known apostles. Did you catch that? The woman is being known as an outstanding and well-known apostle. And who were joined into the anointed one before me. Acts 2.16 says, This is the fulfillment of what was prophesied through the prophet Joel. For God says, This is what I will do in the last days. I will pour out my spirit on just men. Right? Mm -mm. Everybody. And cause your sons only to prophesy, sons and daughters. And your young men will see visions. Your old men will experience dreams from God. The Holy Spirit will come upon all. Say all. All my servants, men and women alike. And they will prophesy. So if you look at the list of spiritual gifts, prophecy is above teaching. There's a list. There's an order. Words mean things. Apostle, teacher, prophet. All things that Paul in the New Testament exhorts, says is good. By the way, give him a kiss. That's what he says for doing all that. Amazing. There was a man named Apollos, Jewish man by the name of Apollos that arrived in Ephesus, a native of Alexandria, recognized as an educated and cultured man. He was powerful in the scripture. You can find this in Acts 18. He accepted Jesus and been taught about the Lord. He was spiritually passionate for Jesus and a convincing teacher, although he only knew about the baptism of John. He fearlessly preached in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard Apollos' teaching, They met with him privately and revealed to him the ways of God more completely. I have a female and Priscilla meeting with a learned man, Apollos, and taking him deeper in his faith through the teaching of the word. Women can't teach men. I've been told that. I have. This woman cannot have a revelation for this man. It's not the order of things. It's not what we do. Acts tells me differently. It says that after he heard the teaching and they met with him privately and revealed to him the ways of God more completely, his ministry took off because he was equipped. He was completed. He had received the word that he needed, and the husband and wife team brought it to him. They taught him, and Priscilla was probably in the lead on that because of the way that they put their names in order. So what am I trying to say to you today? What does this mean for me? And the guys are going, man, I wish you had not talked about this today. (laughs) But you should, guys. You should. Because Satan knows that if he can knock half the church out and keep them in a state where they've been told, you cannot do that. You're not empowered for that. It's not biblically correct then he has wiped out half of your army. And Paul knew that. They were being killed by the hundreds every day. They had to have every single person on deck. They were being used as Roman torches. And men weren't the only ones being stuck on the pole. Is the whole family. They lighted the streets with them. It was important. 
words were important. This is something you died for. We don't die for it here. It's a great building. You have a great pastor. It's very comfortable in there. I'm very comfortable where we go and enjoy church. One like this for them. Women of courage. Men of courage. Side by side. Presenting the gospel. And Paul shows you he's good with it. Jesus shows you he's good with it. The Old Testament shows you and Deborah, God's good with it. I will place my gifting in who I choose. I haven't seen yet where God does the same thing twice. A lot of times, he does it different. So in today's culture, starting with us in the United States, if the enemy is at war with women due to the curse, he is at war with, with women now. If he was at war with them, he's at war with them now. 1769, the colonies adopt the English system. Women cannot own property in their own name or keep their own earnings. What country? United States. 1777, all states pass laws taking away voting rights from women. Why? Some of them were the greatest patriots. Many of them died for the cause of what they were all fighting for. Listen to this. 1866, 14th Amendment, citizens and voters are defined as male. Citizens and voters are defined as male. 1920, 19th Amendment. In 1920, uh, women are allowed to vote. 1923, the Equal Rights Amendment. Equal rights for men and women throughout the United States. Why? Why from the beginning of our country did we do that? Women died for the cause of starting this country. But then a guy, somebody gets in here, I don't know who, and decides it's a good idea that we just call the men citizens and the women don't get to vote. Is it insecurity? No. It's a war. And they don't even know they're in it because the woman will have enmity with you and she will teach her offspring to hate you too and the enemy knows if i can keep that woman from giving a word to somebody or feeling completed in what god said for the original design i'm better off there's a caste system today if you go to the ethiopian church the same outer courts are there even for christian churches Joel Phillips, a brother of mine that sits in a cube next to me, showed me pictures that he took on their trip to Ethiopia. It's a Christian church, Orthodox church, the court of women, the court of men, and then the inner area, and the men get to go into the inner area because you know Jesus tore the veil and now we all get to go into the inner area. The women don't. Why is it so cultural? Because there's an enemy that does not want them to be fully realized. And her power. So am I saying that I'm a woman's liber? No. Because there's a balance. And so the thing that you see today is all the way on the other side. That the woman's going to be in control and they're going to get rid of the men and the stuff you've been hearing through this Kavanaugh case. And man, there's a political spirit across this nation. 
And if the enemy can divide us, not on one side, he'll divide us on the other. And if he can't make us mad at each other because of this issue, he'll make us mad because of this issue, and he does not care what he uses as long as you're mad and as long as you're bound up. So this word for me today to tell you this, I didn't know how I was going to say this to you because I've never done this. I've never talked about this. All I can tell you about is experience. My wife and I, co-pastors of worship ministry at church. I'm a guy who early on in my walk with Christ believed everything about keeping a woman quiet and to the side. And she really doesn't have a place when it comes to the power stuff. But then we were called to a place to where there had to be a real vision cast. And there was nothing there, guys. We came in and folks were hurt, wounded, mixed up. And the Spirit of God got on my wife and said, I'm supposed to come alongside you in this. What do I do? And automatically, the Spirit of God said, build me a band, build a student feeder band so that we'll have people coming up into this band and we can continue to process folks through and get them trained and get them equipped and bring this worship to where it's pleasing to God, edifies the body, and people are wanting to participate in this. And the blessing of God fell. And students came out of the woodwork. I had nothing to do with it. And she really didn't either. It's just that she was being obedient to what God had designed her to be. And she pastored those kids. And she pastored our team. And there's things I can't talk about. Because I can't go to certain situations and have the effect that she does. There are things God has equipped her to do. He hasn't equipped me to do. It doesn't make her any less valuable. And it certainly doesn't disqualify her from doing those things. We were at the Farrow Festival yesterday. I think the thing that really caught my eye, there was a band on stage, and people started filtering up. I noticed there are people from the church where we serve. Adults and students. They made a beeline for her. Because of what she's done. Because of how she's ministered. Because how God equipped her. She made a difference in their life through the love of Christ. I've been told all my life she can't do that. We're told toward the end of our career there we can't do that. But I saw the fruit of it. I saw the acorn about eight years ago. I saw the tree. That stage. They love her because she loved them with Jesus. And she had a word for them I couldn't give. And she brought them through things I couldn't bring them through. I wasn't equipped to do it. I have a great aunt. I say have because she's with Jesus now. So she's fully more alive than I am. And she built a family with her husband. 
And she stayed at home and she raised her daughter. She's a great woman of God. And her husband had an affair because she wasn't enough. And they got through that, so he had another affair. And she forgave him. She loved him through it. She had another affair. And so that one really caught his ear and said, I don't want either one of these in the picture. My godly aunt and my niece. So we moved him to Birmingham, Alabama, because the divorce laws were easier for him to keep all the money. And he could get rid of her easier at that time in the 80s. And he divorced her, and he threw her out. And they lived in my mom's basement for a year until she got her feet under her. And she went back to school. She got her master's degree. She never stopped trusting God. Never stopped teaching her kid how much God loves both of them. And she's going to this church. And the Spirit of God moved on her. Because a lot of people had walked up to her because, you know what, God had anointed her because she had walked through a situation that they had walked through. They were divorced too. So she started kind of on the side talking to them and loving on them, sharing things that God had given her to help them through. And so God put something in her that said, you need to lead a divorce care group. You didn't have divorce care groups then, guys. You just didn't. They didn't talk about it in church, right? We don't talk about that stuff. She went to the pastor on fire. This is what God told me I should do. This has brought the things that she had been doing, the people she had been talking to, the men and the women. And the pastor looked at her and said, Wow. Didn't know this was going on. Probably should have okayed it through me first. I'm sorry, I don't really understand what you're saying. Well, we got a certain way of things. We do things here. And this isn't the way we do it. Now, when were you wanting to have this done? Well, we were thinking about Sunday nights. Oh, you want to have it in the church? Well, see, we can't do that. Our bylaws state that a woman can't lead a man in this church. And you said you were talking to men, right? Well, yeah, they just they came to me, and so I just gave them some things that I did. Now, don't think that's possible. Now, what we can do is we could put a guy in charge of that, and then you could help call people and have them come to it. How about that? Well, I don't think it's supposed to be that way. I mean, that's not... How God gave me that. Well, ma'am, I don't mean to tell you anything that you think, but that's not what the Bible says. Have you read your Bible? You seen the order? I'd like to bring you into the New Testament where, you know, Paul shows you the example. It's the man, it's God, then man, then the woman, and the woman's to remain silent. Broke her heart broke her heart. Never, ever again tried to do anything. Still love God. 
still trusted him, broke. This word today is for somebody who's been broke. I'm telling you, you're valuable. I'm telling you, the word says you're empowered. I'm telling you, this world is dying and going to hell. And we put a governor on half the church. And men, we'd be a whole lot better off if we'd let them stand right here with us and do what God ordained and go to the original design. Let them lead with us. It's biblical. And God ordained it. It's not what you've heard. It's not whatever I said. God helps those who help themselves. Mm -mm. We're all gifted. We're all in this together. We don't have time for this mess. Agreed? For more information on Eagles Wing Church, visit our website at www.eagleswingchurch.org or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Eagles Wing Church. Thanks for listening and have a blessed week.